Hello, I'm Q Lee and welcome to Pod of the Planet, a brand new podcast about the world of sustainable development. Wait, Q, I'm a professor of sustainable development. I can tell you that there's a lot of people who don't know what that term means. All right. How about a podcast about science, the environment, climate change, water, energy, public health, poverty and development, disasters, urbanization. Okay, okay, okay. Are you done yet? Okay, how about this? A podcast about earth and everything that happens on it. Perfect. Cue the music. Okay, but what really is this podcast about? It's about how the planet works, how it is changing, and what we're doing to manage that change. So let's get back to intros. This is our first podcast. Uh, I'm a lot of nervous energy. I don't know how you feel. We can do this, Q. <laughs> okay, let's see if we can get through this. So my name is Q, and I'm uh, here part of the communications department at the Earth Institute. Been here for ten years. How long have you been here, Jason? Wow, I've been here only a little longer since 2005. I came as a postdoc and have stayed on uh, and achieved my current position as an Earth Institute uh, faculty member. Okay, and then you I mean you want to talk a little bit about your uh, position right now, or uh, we can get to that. But let's talk about you first. What do you what what brings you to the Earth Institute, Q? Okay, so how did I get here? Uh, that's a good question. Um, like I said, I've been working at the Earth Institute for about ten years now, but I would say that it all started back when I was nineteen years old, and and it was the year nineteen ninety two. You can believe that, and I found myself in the middle of the Rio Earth Summit. Wow, how did you end up there? So basically I had the opportunity through a friend's older brother who was working for a newspaper called the Earth Summit Times and asked uh, if I wanted to come on board. And so I took that opportunity. You didn't have to ask me twice. And I had, we traveled to Rio for the duration of the conference. I did everything that they asked me to deliver newspapers, uh, take some pictures here and there, write a short story. And, and uh, it was, um, the most <laughs> incredible experience of my life at the time. So that's an amazing experience for a 19 year old. How did you, did you, were you aware? Were you kind of environmentally conscious at the time or was it just an opportunity that came up and you jumped out? Yeah. So I, like most 19 year olds didn't really have a care in the world outside of what my classes were the next day. And it was an opportunity that just fell in my lap. So what do you remember? That sounds like it was pretty formative for you. What do you remember uh, taking away from that and sort of how, how did that launch you into your path that fell, followed? Yeah, I, I remember um, I remember a lot of people uh, yelling at each other uh, about their <laughs> about their rights. Uh, you know, people um, who expressed a, a whole range of emotions. People who were angry. People were, were hopeful. We had scientists presenting their work. We had uh, indigenous groups who uh, were fighting for their rights um, and um, and a lot of politicians in between just trying to negotiate. So it was uh, an amazing, amazing experience. And so how then did that feed into your uh, your subsequent path? What 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 came next for you? You were a New York native? I am a New York native. I guess I grew up in the Bronx and uh, and in Westchester. Right, and, native. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know what that means or what that means to you. <laughs> I, you know, as a transplant, it seems like most people uh, in New York um, come from different places. But of course, there's a lot of folks that have grown up here and it's always exciting to meet people who uh, have well, grown up their whole life here. Do you feel like a New Yorker now? I think that technically it's official. I think, <laughs> what was is it like, like 10 six? years? Was it 10? <laughs> 10 years now? Yeah, we probably upped it over the years. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I mean, yes, I, I guess I'm a New Yorker. Uh, there's some, a lot of baggage that comes along with that. But, uh, you know, the opportunity to travel to a place like like Rio and, and just 
witness all that enthusiasm, I think really set me on this path. And I ended up working for a newspaper and kind of, I guess, forged my career in journalism for, for a long time. And, uh, it was always about people, you know, it's always about talking to people and, and getting their perspective on, on things, um, all sorts of people. And that's what really interests me these days. That's really cool. So, so now that you're at the Earth Institute, how are you uh, feeding those interests in terms of what you're doing here now? So this is one way, <laughs> trying to come up with, here, here's our podcast, right? And, and hopefully uh, people will listen to it other than us too. Um, and certainly yeah, there are other things that we're, we're experimenting with, but, you know, really trying to work for the people who are doing the hard work, I think here at the Earth Institute, um, that's what. Uh, well, I can tell you guys are doing great work. I mean, not to uh, pat you on the back too much, but I, I, you know, in my time here, I think that we've done a tremendous amount uh, to really increase our visibility through the Earth Institute and also at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, which is another uh, place that we obviously <laughs> know about and spend a lot of time at. Okay. Um, but you know, in terms of the amount that we're engaging in these outreach and communication efforts, uh, your team has done a tremendous amount over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years since I've been here to really increase the, our visibility and how much we're communicating with the uh, people outside of the ivory tower, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. I mean, so, I mean, let's talk about you. I mean, first of all, why are you here and doing this podcast? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I supposed to stay in the ivory tower because you asked me to Q. I couldn't say no, but I, I also, I, I really enjoy doing this kind of stuff. And I think it's, it's really important. It's a chance to put the work that we do in a different context, reach a different audience and um, communicate what's important about it and why we spend our time doing it. What about as the perspective from a, you know, from a scientist, from a researcher and, and doing this type of communications work? Science is really important. It's all around us. Uh, it defines uh, the world we live in. And those of us who practice science can um, do it in our respective black boxes and talk to, uh, you know, the communities that we interact with scientifically um, in a way that moves our science forward and and is important for the science that we do. But I think that it's really important. The public at large understands um, how important science is The as an understanding of the findings that we generate, particularly in, in my field. Uh, I study climate change. Obviously, that's a hugely important issue uh, for the 21st century, and it's not appropriate to just um, you know, publish that information in journals and within my scientific communities. It really needs to be com- uh, communicated to the public at large. And so the chance to engage the public in these these discussions about, you know, the findings that we're generating that have huge implications and really um, are important to everyone is is really central to what we should be doing. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that now. The internet has changed the world in so many ways, but one of the ways that we can do that is through podcasts that we can just beam out uh, to the planet uh, after right. we record them. And, mm-hmm. and that's an important way of approaching this. So what about I mean, let's go back to the more traditional way that, that you approach it. You're a, you're a teacher, you're a professor, right. you, you co-direct the undergraduate sustainable development program here at Columbia University. Right. You want to talk a little bit about that program? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about education in general. So there's lots of things that we do in the Earth Institute to educate at the undergraduate and graduate levels. We have lots of uh, master's programs. We have a PhD program. We have the undergraduate program in sustainable development. 
And that's another really important way that we communicate our knowledge and our findings. So I have the privilege of interacting with uh, undergraduate and graduate students on a daily basis to talk to them about the specifics of my research, but also how it fits into the larger context of sustainable development, all of the important issues of the 21st century. Uh, and certainly at the undergraduate level, um, I am so lucky to be interacting with um, you know, the undergraduates in our program, we have 150 declared majors and special wow. concentrators, okay. many of whom will go on to graduate school, take position, leadership positions in government and business uh, and sustainability as a topic in terms of the things that we discuss is essential to all of those areas. And so it's really exciting to see how these students go on and take what they learn about sustainable development to the, the careers that they pursue. Do you think that a lot of uh, students, when they you know, when, when they show an interest in, in this program, do they know what sustainable development means? Some, okay. <laughs> some, some, uh, tell me that they've come to Columbia specifically for our program, but we have a lot of students who are curious, don't know exactly what it means. And I, I mean, I ask that because I, it, it, like, sometimes I don't even feel like I know what it means. Right. <laughs> and, and I, I've been working here for a long time and, and it's been involved in, but the, the sort of layers that, that get attached to sustainable right. development year by year, as you learn more, it just becomes, <laughs> I don't know if it's overwhelming or. I mean, I talk about it in my introductory class about, uh, I, I discuss it as a contestable concept. I, try to define liberty or justice or democracy. Some of mm. these other huge words that define so much about, um, our world and, and represent normative ideas that are important to us within our democracy. And so I think sustainable development on some levels should be hard to define and mm. wrap your head around in part because it pervades so many different things, but also because it's a continuously evolving concept. Okay. It's also very applied. I mean, it's one of those things where it's sometimes hard to define, but you really know it when you see it, when you see a project or something that somebody's pursuing that mm. really does help to illustrate what we think of when we say sustainable development, what we mean by that. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, so personally, part of this podcast project is for me, at least a bit of a journey uh, to understand uh, even better what sustainable development is and and to talk through um, to, to co-host this, uh, this podcast with you and also, you know, talk with the hundreds of, uh, researchers and, and people, uh, that make up the earth Institute. And, and maybe this is a good point to talk about what is the earth Institute at Columbia university. Um, do you, do you have a, a short way <laughs> of describing it? It's hard to describe as sustainable <laughs> development. Right. Um, I often describe it as an umbrella group within the campus. It, um, connects, lots of different educational research initiatives here. So it includes lots of research centers like the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, the principal earth science research Institute within Columbia, but it also connects a lot of other research centers focused on law and public health, um, various parts of the humanities, lots of different efforts on decision-making and policy. All these different things are going on in various capacities at Columbia. And the Earth Institute is a way of trying to connect all those disparate units as well as encourage a conversation across those units. So the Earth Institute faculty is this ad hoc body of faculty members from all these different areas, departments, schools, et cetera, mm. with the common purpose of discussing sustainable development and how the different things we do here at Columbia uh, help define what that is, yeah. help articulate how to pursue sustainable development. And I think the genius of the Earth Institute and what it's really become over uh, its lifetime is uh, 
an institute that has really galvanized discussion around sustainable development, helped us think about how these things connect and attach um, and what we actually need to do to pursue sustainable development, as well as really engendering, I think, a lot of um, interest and education. So we have, of course, a lot of educational programs within the Earth Institute from the undergraduate to the PhD level uh, that has also been really important for educating tomorrow's leaders in these important areas. So it's safe to say that if you are part of the Earth Institute, that you can't really work in a box or, or work no, up in no, the ivory point, tower. Right? <laughs> the point is to force you out of your box and, and to think about how your specific discipline fits in other boxes. Right. So Jason, we talked about my motivations. Uh, what are your motivations? Well, how'd you end up here? <laughs> That's a long story. Outside of me <laughs> you know, emailing you and, and asking you to do this podcast. It's a long story. I mean, I started, uh, I grew up in Washington state and then went to a, a college in Minnesota where I did a, um, where I majored in physics. Um, and that was a real, um, sort of important point for me. I, I, when I was looking at graduate schools, it was sort of this decision between a straight physics PhD and something in applied physics. Wow. Working. Okay. applied physics problems. People major in physics, huh? Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I actually tell this story a lot to students because, um, you know, I think the impression is, is that, uh, the academics knew what we wanted to do at three and it's all just been a linear path from there. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> when my, my senior year in college, I was applying for different graduate schools and I had visited the university of Michigan and really liked it, but wanted to get back to the West coast where I'd grown up. Mm. And I'd planned to go visit a bunch of schools um, over my spring break. And the day after I, I flew home for spring break, uh, the town where I went to college was destroyed by a tornado. Our, our campus was uh, decimated. There was over $65 million of damage to the campus, oh, the town, the house I lived in had its roof ripped off. Wow. So, uh, I, I flew back immediately to volunteer and help with the cleanup. Um, and I think that had an important impact on my decision to go to Michigan because I just hadn't seen any of the other schools, but Michigan was really important because I went, um, planning to focus on biophysics. I was, I started out in labs where I was shooting proteins with lasers, Okay, which all sounds really cool, but it was for me it's at the like time. Laser tag <laughs> yeah, meets. <right>. <laughs> meets biotech, uh, important stuff. But for me, it wasn't really where I wanted to be. I had had environmental interest for a long time and it, I was kind of, was kind of coming to a head where I was thinking about what I want to do long-term for my career and mm -hmm. how, um, my environmental interests and values, uh, would dovetail with that. And I was really fortunate to take, uh, a class called the science of politics of global warming. Okay. And it was taught by my eventual PhD advisor who I didn't know at the time and his wife, who was the president of the Michigan environmental council. So they had this, it was this great, uh, science and policy presentation of climate change in the late nineties, uh, which for me at the time I knew about, but it really, uh, brought it into focus and that changed my direction entirely. I, it turned out that, um, you know, for better or for worse? <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> and so I, I came to it late. I mean, I, uh, the instructor of the course is a geophysicist uh, who late in his career started focusing on climate change. So it was this really does that, important confluence. Does that seem like a, a kind of a natural, not maybe not a natural progression, but uh, you know, a lot of climate scientists you talk to now, do you think, I mean, they started off somewhere else and, and ended up in climate or, or global warming or sustainability issues? I think that's true for a lot of us. It's, it's a really multidisciplinary, um, 
field. I mean, and that's one of the things that's exciting about it. You get to work with physicists like me, you get to work with biologists, ecologists, chemists, everybody's coming at this problem uh, from different directions, but the climate system requires all of that expertise. And it really defines this kind of multidisciplinary perspective that we have to have. So a lot of people have these uh, paths that aren't exactly obvious if you think about them from the beginning. But what, and so what about the, like the emotional side of being, um, a scientist involved in this, in this work, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I guess I picture scientists and researchers, uh, when they're doing their work act kind of like Spock, right. And, and sort of separate <laughs> their That's emotions exactly from their it, but, Spock. <laughs> but, but you can't, you can't do that now in an age of, uh, of, of climate and global warming and sustainability. Right. Uh, I don't know. How do, do you, do you mix in your emotions? How does your emotions play in, in the work that you do? I think it impacts everyone differently. I know that um, a lot of my colleagues struggle with it, especially when they're studying the really devastating impacts of climate change. And in some fields, for instance, if you're studying corals um, and you're watching massive coral reefs uh, bleach out and die, you know, things that we've seen over the last several years, um, that's an incredibly difficult emotional experience if you're you know, if you've been somebody who's go, been going out in the field and studying these, uh, these systems for long periods of time. So it's, it's tough. I think for me, um, some of my solace comes in the fact that I'm just working on it. Okay. You know, you, it, it doesn't, I think where it really gets difficult is if you feel you have no agency and you're just helpless in the face of all of these changes. And so many of us have to sort of come to grips with that. On well, you have level. agency here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and whenever you want to vent. Well, thanks, Q. I, but I, I, for me, I think that's the big difference uh, is that I, I work on this stuff daily and it's something that I've devoted my life to trying to improve. And, and that just like any of us working at the Earth Institute, um, that gives you motivation to continue what you're doing. You feels like running into a wall in many days, but, right. um, it's better than not doing anything. Sure. All right, Q. Well, this has been a lot of fun discussing sort of how we've ended up here, uh, talking to each other with microphones in front of our faces, but what are we actually going to try to cover this year? What, what, what's your vision for the pod moving forward? Well, I think one of the biggest, uh, questions that we've been facing for the past, you know, since ever since global warming has entered our, our, uh, in the public discourse, is why don't, you know, more people really believe in the science or at least why do you feel like there's, um, you know, there are folks that are skeptical and, and folks that, uh, don't, uh, trust the science. Um, you're a scientist. I mean, do you have any thoughts on like, you know, the, the work that you do, the, the <laughs> why people don't believe it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, my, my personal view on it is that there have been, uh, a select group of, um, people and companies that have paid a lot of money to confuse people about it. Right. And that is one of the main reasons that, um, this has become an ideological issue an issue that, uh, the public is confused by. And it's why for decades, instead of talking about the important questions with regard to what we do about climate change and how we're going to address it, there are still people who, uh, would rather talk about, uh, whether or not it exists and deny the fact that deny the comprehensive and settled science, uh, around the fact that, the earth is warming and humans are causing it. Right. And, and for me, from my perspective, uh, you know, one way to get around that, um, is to get to know who the, you know, the, the researchers are behind the research. And I just take it back to a quick story. I, you know, when I was young and, and working as a, as a journalist, um, one of my editors 
took a newspaper and, and, and showed it to me. It was, in, it was, it was probably the New York, New York times and asked me Q, he's like, what is the most important part of this article going through this article? And, and I just looked at it and I said, I don't know, is it the, you know, the nut graph, the, the, the lead of the article, the last sentence of the first paragraph. And he said, no, it's the byline. Um, and, and that really hit home with me. It, it, this idea that I need to know who are the reporters and writers behind these articles and, and to get to know them. Um, because once they, you know, you, you, you kind of travel or, or you, as, as you read them more, you uh, get to understand their nuances, their takes. Um, and, and, uh, and I think this is, this is applicable to all things. You know? When did your editor tell you that? When did he tell me that? Um, probably after he yelled across the room and said, Q, what is this? No, <laughs> what, what date, like what year was that? This was a, it was a man named, uh, his name was C. Gerald Frazier. Um, and, uh, this was probably in 1994, 1995. I mean, what I'm thinking about is how prescient that was given the, you know, the heightened social media awareness around reporters right. today. I mean, now more than ever, I think people follow specific reporters, have conversations with them on Twitter. Right. Um, so that truth is only intensified. Yeah. And, and journalists have gone beyond their bylines or gone beyond the articles they've written and make themselves a presence and a personality right through social media and, and, and all that. So, right. It's very important now at least to, to really get to know who these folks are. And, and I think that that's a, you know, a lesson that's traveled with me my entire life. So with this podcast, I'm really hoping that we can um, not only humanize the science, but uh, you know, figure out like, you know, who, what, what are scientists and what motivates them and, and the folks that are at the earth and suit um, the hundreds of them that, that, that are here. Uh, why do they wake up every day and, and do what they do? Careful what you ask for. Q. Okay. Yeah. That's all. That's a lot of <laughs> podcast episodes we're, we're talking about. We have lined up. Okay. So it's the year 2020. Oh God. It's, it is. It's, a, it's, I mean, 2020 <laughs> it hasn't quite settled in, at least for me yet. Um, and so what can we look for in 2020 with this podcast? Uh, you know, I wanted to reference this Scientific American article, which I thought was excellent, uh, that came out and basically talking about, you know, what to look for uh, in science and in sustainability uh, in 2020. And, and they touched around, you know, upon some major themes. Um, the first theme being Arctic warming. Uh, Arctic warming is a, is a big deal. <laughs> right. Uh, affects a, a, a lot of different uh, systems. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about what uh, the importance of Arctic warming and, and why we should be looking at it? Well, there's lots of reasons why we should be looking at it. Uh, first and foremost is that the Arctic ecosystem is changing faster than any place on the planet. And that has a lot of implications for the people and wildlife that live there. But the other fact is that the Arctic is tied to our global systems as well. So as we melt more ice and snow in the Arctic, uh, we change the top of the planet from a mirror to something that absorbs uh, radiation, solar radiation much uh, more effectively. And so that actually accelerates the warming. The other thing that's really important in the Arctic as well as the Antarctic is that uh, the two major ice sheets on our planet reside in, in the polar regions. And with regard to the Arctic, it's of course Greenland. And as uh, the Arctic warms, Greenland melts, and that means accelerating sea level rise globally. Um, and so these are not changes that are just resigned to the Arctic, but are coupled to the global systems and impacts that we'll all feel. Right. And, and there was some really important research uh, done by, um, you know, one of our colleagues, Marco Tedesco, uh, and it, it was about Greenland ice sheet and how it could potentially be melting at a, a much quicker rate. Um, right. And uh, so this is obviously clearly something we're going to be, have to pay attention more uh, in, in the upcoming year. Um, another big topic, sea level rise, 
related to arctic warming, but it has its own kind of implications too. Uh, you want to get into that? Lots of people working on sea level rise. I mean, as you've already mentioned, uh, we have researchers working in both the Arctic and the Antarctic to understand how the ice sheets are changing. And, you know, Greenland has seven meters of sea level rise wrapped up into it. Uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is the most vulnerable part, vulnerable part of is that the Larsen ice sheet or which one's the Larsen? The Larsen ice sh uh, shelf ice uh, okay. is one of these ice shelves that holds back a lot of the glaciers draining into the ocean right. in um, is with regard to the Larsen it's Antarctica, but right. these ice shelves are really important for um, essentially holding back some of the glacial drainage. And once they are destroyed, like the Larsen A and B over the last several uh, over the last decade or more, um, many of the glaciers that are held back by those ice sheet, ice shelves, excuse me, um, then in turn run much more quickly into the ocean and accelerate sea level rise. So it's all connected, right. but the West Antarctic ice sheet, uh, is important because it's, you know, another four to five meters of sea level rise thought to be much thought to be quite vulnerable, uh, and is something that, uh, will accelerate this century as well. And then, uh, getting into, uh, Another topic, obviously, is uh, extreme weather. Um, we talk about the weather all the time, but nobody's doing anything about it, right? Um, and we have uh, you know, some of the best researchers on, on extreme weather that are looking at everything from not only causes, but, you know, correlations and, and you know, putting together mitigation plans uh, and, and adaptation plans around it. So um, do you want to get a little bit into what we should be looking for? Yeah, we have people researching droughts, uh, heat waves, hurricanes, um, massive uh, precipitation events and subsequent flooding. A lot of these kinds of extremes are also connected to weather related um, extremes like fire. Uh, and certainly we've uh, been hearing a lot about that both in the United States and, and right now, of course, in Australia. Uh, so how all of those things are connected, the expectations for how they'll change into the future. And as you mentioned, in terms of how they're correlated, how do droughts and heat waves and, uh, flooding connect? And what does that mean for vulnerabilities with regard to things like our food supply? Um, and so yeah. when, I mean, the biggest question that always seems to pop up whenever uh, an extreme weather event happens is did climate change cause this, right? right? Um, how would you answer that? And then, and looking at, you know, 2020, do we have better tools to right. kind of examine that? Our ability to answer that question has gotten better over time. So it used to be just the kind of rule of thumb that no weather event, no individual weather event could be uh, attributed to climate change. But in some ways it's the wrong question to be asking. Really the question is, did climate change make a particular event more probable and possibly more extreme. And more and more we're able to say definitively, yes, that these kinds of events that are occurring um, that would in the past maybe only occur every 100 or 1,000 years are now happening every other year. Uh, they're more extreme. And we're able to attribute that more, much more effectively with the tools that we have now. And, and you know, we say extreme weather, but this could be applicable to the wildfires, obviously, right? right? And, and, and other things that are happening. Absolutely. Because things like wildfires are also tied to precipitation and heat and wind. And we know how those things are changing uh, as a result. of. I heard changing. an analogy uh, the other day and, and you tell me if it's a good one, but someone asked that question, uh, you know, can we really attribute the wildfires to climate change? And, and a researcher scientist said, well, I mean, think about like uh, smoking and cancer, you know, you can't attribute, you know, one particular cigarette that you may have smoked in your life to, to cancer, but we know that smoking is bad. 
Uh, yeah, it's a great analogy. And I think it's, it's apt in this case. So uh, next up is uh, global temperatures. What uh, they're, they're rising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's maybe the least exciting story for 2020. <laughs> I think we're pretty clear on, on wh- what direction we're going. And uh, it's just a question of um, how warm 2020 will be. How fast uh, will it be the warmest year? I mean, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, another thing that that's actually not on this article, but we wanted to talk about in the context of the work that the earth Institute is involved with, um, some of the legal challenges and, and the legal frameworks that, that are being put together, um, you know, towards climate action. Yeah. So a lot of what the article, uh, that you were referencing talks about is the sort of physical impacts of climate change. But of course there's all these other big questions about how we're going to respond to climate change. Will we mitigate, uh, the worst um, risks of climate change? How are we going to a- adapt to the changes that are, are happening now and are going to intensify moving forward? And of course, the legal aspects of all of this are uh, really important for how we implement some of these adaptation and mitigation strategies, as well as whether or not we find specific companies or people culpable for the kinds of impacts that we're experiencing. Whose fault is it that uh, we're experiencing these extreme weather events and uh, should companies that have contributed to um, the massive increases in greenhouse gases in our atmosphere be in some way held culpable for uh, some of the impacts. Yeah. And and we're really fortunate at the Earth Institute to um, have a place called the Sabin Center for Climate Change, which is also part of the Columbia Law School here uh, that we work really closely with. Um, and one of the amazing tools that they put out was this climate deregulation tracker, which looks at a lot of the proposed legislations uh, from from know, the, the White House and the administration and, and what effect and it's having on, on climate change uh, regulation overall. So uh, we'll continue to track that uh, through, through these podcasts and, and hopefully bring in some experts from the Sabin Center to talk more about um, what they're seeing and, and, and what to expect. Okay. And last thing, uh, 2020, we can't talk about 2020 without talking about a little bit about the election. <laughs> something coming up that oh. we've all heard about. It feels like we've already been through several of them in the last couple of months. Right. <clears throat> See, what, I, what I'm saying is it feels like a lifetime away, but uh, with regard to sustainability and climate change, it's obviously um, a... This is the year. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it's the year. I mean, we've we've lost a lot of time specifically with regard to addressing climate change. The Trump administration, of course, um, denies the existence of climate change, has pulled us out or begun the process to pull us out of uh, the Paris Accord, uh, is actively um, undermining regulations to address climate change. And so specifically through the lens of addressing climate change, this is a um, generational election. We really were at a, we're during the urgency of this issue has um, existed for a long time now, but we've lost four precious years in terms of the progress we were making under the Obama administration. And really we've turned a lot of that around. Um, and in terms of addressing this problem, we can't lose another four years under administration that doesn't um, acknowledge the existence of climate change. Yeah. I mean, the long and short of it is that if you care anything about the planet and earth, you should be involved in this election and, and go vote. Yes, I think that's fair. All right. So we've been talking a lot about climate change, but the Earth Institute is, in fact, uh, a lot bigger and, and than, than climate change itself. Well, we're, we're very expansive and we, we cover a lot of different topics. Um, some of the upcoming things we'd like to discuss on this podcast include things like 
being prepared for disasters. Uh, we have a center on disaster preparedness and, and, um, and it'll be, we want to make sure that everyone has their emergency kits ready in their cars and in their homes when disaster does strike. Um, other big topics include race and racism in, in the geosciences. Uh, this is something that where we we're all really concerned about, you know, looking at undersea volcanism and, and things like hydrothermal vents and how they could be used to um, estimate flows of oil spillages and and uh, and, and the important work uh, that that's behind that. You know, other things like listening to bird calls up in the Arctic and and how that's uh, an indicator of of what's happening there and and um, and, and the importance of, the, of that research. So, yeah, that's all to say that there's a lot of great stuff happening at the Earth Institute, and we want to make sure we um, cover them all. Uh, anything else that pops into your head, Jason? We've got a lot of work to do, Q. We, we, you buckle up, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> last thing I wanted to talk about this podcast is actually what happened uh, last year. And maybe it's a bit of a some some good news, a little glimmer of hope, but maybe not. Um, there was uh, a report of how emissions in the U.S. have dropped by about, what was it, uh, uh, almost 3%. You want to unpack that a little bit, Jason? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, it is good news in the sense that, uh, you know, there was some concern in 2018 that uh, emissions were ticking up after a fairly, um, you know, persistent decline over the last several years. Uh, so it's it's nice to see us going in the opposite direction. Um, unpacking it, it's largely through the um, power generation as an energy source that we've made those gains. And it's um, largely because the use of coal-fired uh, power plants has continued its decline uh, and renewables have increased, but in particular gas power plants have really taken over that are more efficient and reduce uh, the number of emissions per kilowatt hours that are generated. Is there any possibility of these gains being reversed and, and going back to coal? I mean, when are we, when we talk about market forces, are we, is this just a, a general trend? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, going back to the politics, uh, all of the discussion in the 2016 election around, um, Coal was in many ways a red herring. There's there's certainly policy decisions that can prolong the use of coal for, of coal as an energy source, but it's largely market forces that are driving the changes in our energy sector. And um, coal has been on a downward trend uh, for well over a decade now. Gas has uh, emerged as a cheaper energy source. It happens to also be uh, a more efficient in terms of uh, generating kilowatt hours relative to emissions that are generated. And that largely has just been market forces. And so that those trends will continue. Okay, great. Something to keep on paying attention to in the new year. Um, this ends our podcast, Pod of the Planet. Thank you to my co-host, Jason, for joining us and uh, see you next time. Thank you, Q. I'll look forward to it.